We are in part 38 of our rapidly closing series through the book of Acts. We've been doing it line by line all year long. As the year is wrapping up, so is the series. I'm a little bit sad about that because I feel like this series has been so powerful in my life, right? Really learning about the Apostle Paul, the early church launch, all that kind of stuff. But I want to give a little bit of a disclaimer as we begin today's message. I entitled it, The Power of a Dead Man. The subject that we're going to be referring to today is this concept that the Bible talks about dying to self, alive to Christ, where we're no longer building our kingdom, we're building his kingdom. There's this radical concept where it's this following Jesus in total abandon, always saying yes every time. That's the subject we're going to talk about. So here's the disclaimer. I'm not there yet. This is not a message that I get to talk to you and say, hey, if you just do what I do, everything's going to be cool. I have such a learning curve on this one. I am so far from looking like Jesus and Paul. You're like, oh, well, pastor, you do this for a living. It's your kind of your whole life. I get it. I'm talking about inside. I'm talking about the times that the Holy Spirit taps me on the shoulder and I don't do it. I'm talking about the sin that is still in my life when my king told me to get rid of it a long time ago. I'm talking about all the ways that matter. It's one thing to look like something outwardly. It's another thing to be doing it all the time. And so you're not going to hear some weird top-down message from me. You're going to keep hearing the phrase, we, and we're all in this boat together. I think that the amount of time that we are spending building our, our own kingdom or we're spending on self-preservation is too much. I think we're spending way too much time building us and not so much time building what the Lord wants us to build. And I think that some of that needs to change. I will tell you that if we have any shot in looking like Jesus, any shot in looking like Paul the apostle, there's two key elements that need to be locked down. If you're a note taker, I want you to write these down. Write down these two things. I'm gonna try to keep them simple. The first one is this, write this down, proper worldview. Proper worldview. Our worldview is how we imagine our universe works. It's the framework of our why. So for example, let's say you had a worldview that evolution is true. Now I'm not talking about theistic evolution that you know God started the Big Bang and then it kind of rolled from there. I'm talking about like old school, like everything's an accident. If you truly believe that, that is going to inform how you believe the universe operates. It's going to matter in your decisions day to day. Why? Well, for some people that believe that, they will go on one side and say, hey, man, if this is the only life we've got, if we are just going to disappear after this, we might need to handle it a little bit different. Or maybe they would say, you know what, if everything's random, I'm not seeing deep meaning in this, so I'm going to operate like this. If you truly believe that, and that's your worldview, it's going to have an effect. Whereas if you had a biblical worldview that says there is a creator, that says that you are a created being, that you suddenly, God has value in you, there's meaning, there's purpose, there's plan, that's going to flesh out in your every day you will start having nobility for life in certain areas. You're going to start treating people a little bit different. Your worldview matters. Until we have a worldview that is aligned with God, we're going to keep trying to focus on ourselves. Here's the second thing. Write this down. Understanding our identity in Christ. Understanding our identity in Christ. You see, when Jesus Christ died on the cross, his final words were, it is finished. What he meant was the payment for the sins of the world had been complete. There's no more savior that needed to show up. There's no more work that needed to be done. All that was necessary had been completed. But the application of it is that everything changed supernaturally. 
That when Jesus died on the cross, it gave us the opportunity to be fused with him. It gave us the opportunity to be turned from an enemy of God to a child of God. It gave us a new identity. It gave us a new way of living. We began to be fused with Jesus, so his resources translated over to us. We operate in power and authority. We also realize that we are chosen, we are precious. If he died for us, then wow, we must be of infinite value. All of that shifts, and the rest of our lives, we're going to be figuring out what God already knows about us. Until we fully appreciate what God has done and understand how that changed us, it doesn't matter whether we feel like it's true. It's either true or it's not true. But if we begin to embrace that and allow that to soak deep down we're going to stop thinking primarily about self-preservation. We're going to stop being approval addicted. And we're going to start being freed up to living the life that we were built to live. And I don't know how to do either one of those without a steady intake of the Word of God. Now, if I tell you, man, you need to read the Bible more, that just kind of you know, washes right over you. It'll shoot over your head or whatever because it's kind of like, oh, everybody says that. I'm not talking about it in an ethereal, metaphorical way. I'm talking about it is necessary on a practical level, and here's why. For me, it is everything. So let me give you an example. So I, I, I prep these sermons, right? I do them every week, right? And... I prep a lot. Like this is kind of a, a big deal for me. So for example, when I prepare this message, I have to get it out to my team uh, before I give it to you guys because they're doing some prep off of it. So what I handed out this week was a 17 page report document. I got eight point font notes in the bottom, uh, footnotes, I got all kinds of stuff, right? It's a significant, it's commentaries, word dictionaries, looking up online maps and resources. There is so much in every sermon. You're like, oh, you're patting yourself on the back. Okay, no, here's my point. When you get done putting all those hours in, my head is in a different place when I'm done. Why? It pulls me out of the day-to-day it takes me away from my little petty problems. It lifts me up into a more noble place. I'm translated into a place where Jesus is king. You know, sometimes you get tunnel vision and you're just focused on your own problems. When you spend that much time studying the word of God, it rips you out of that and shoves you into a place where God is great. And it makes me do different stuff. It makes me think different things. So when I talk about reading and studying the Bible, I'm talking about we need it to live. And it's so critical that I need to be very clear on this. You need a diet of this in the raw because everything you hear from me or any podcast or anything on the radio or any video should be a supplement to your own reading. And here's why, because we're biased. I try not to be biased. I try to adjust from my bias. I try to do all my study and present it in a certain way. But the truth is, I'm a dude. I was born in this time. I was born in this country. And I am affected by what's around me. There's no way for me to break out of that. And as much as I'm going to do my best to help you out, sometimes the Holy Spirit wants to tell you stuff I'm not going to address. Sometimes the Holy Spirit has a personal message for you and he doesn't need it regurgitated through a pastor. He needs it to go straight from his heart right into your heart. We have to have this in us if we have any shot in living for Christ with abandon. At the end of the day, if we only live for ourselves, we will hold back from God's best for us. On the other hand, is the fill in the blank on the sheet in front of you and on the app, and it's this, a dead person fears nothing. A dead person fears nothing. Would you turn with me to Acts chapter 21? Acts chapter 21, if you need a Bible, there should be one under the seat in front of you. If you're brand new to the Bible, just drop it open in the middle, go to the right. You're gonna go quite a ways to the right. You're gonna hit Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, 
Acts. We're going to be in Acts, go towards the end of that book, and that is chapter 21. And so I'm going to bring some recap to you because not everybody remembers what we did last week. Can we appreciate Pastor Judah's preaching, right? Yeah, a tremendous man of God, incredible communicator, and we are very, very blessed every time he takes the pulpit. So he shared a couple things with us last week, and I want to kind of recap those. And that is Paul the Apostle, who we've been tracking with for a while now in this book, in the launch of Christianity, has been on these years-long mission trips over, speaking primarily to a non-Jewish audience, which is called a Gentile audience. And he's been out setting up churches and then visiting them. Well, one of the churches that really has his heart was a church called Ephesus or the Ephesians. It's in modern day Turkey. And he had finished up a really long ministry with them. And he was saying goodbye to them, knowing he's never going to see him again. There's a lot of tears. There was a lot of sadness. Like, man, I don't ever want to see you go, right? And I'm going to read you a recap that shows his heart. Check this out. Acts 20, 22, Paul said, and now behold, my Ephesian brothers, I am going to Jerusalem, constrained by the Holy Spirit, not knowing what will happen to me there, except that the Holy Spirit testifies to me in every city that imprisonment and afflictions await me there. But I do not account my life of any value or precious to myself, if only I may finish my course and the ministry that I receive from the Lord Jesus, which is to testify of the gospel of the grace of God. And now, behold, I know that none of you among whom I've gone about proclaiming the kingdom will ever see my face again. And with that, we begin right there. Acts chapter 21, verse 1. You ready to go? Here we go. And when we... That means the author Luke is included in this in a personal way. And when we had parted from them and we set sail, we came by a straight course to the island of Kos, and the next day to the island of Rhodes, where in ancient history it had one of the seven wonders of the world, a 150-foot brass statue called the Colossus that stood at the mouth of the harbor. Now in Paul's day had already fallen into ruin and disrepair but it had a rich history. And from there, we went to the seaport town of Patara, and having found a ship that would cross the Mediterranean Sea eastward to Phoenicia, we went aboard and we set sail. When we had come inside of the large island of Cyprus, leaving it on the left, we sailed to Syria, and after a five-day voyage, landed at the city of Tyre, for there the ship was to unload its cargo. Having some time, we sought out the disciples. We stayed there for seven days. And through the Holy Spirit, the saints were telling Paul not to go to Jerusalem. When our days there were ended, we departed and went on our journey. And they all, with wives and children, accompanied us until we were outside the city. And kneeling down on the beach, we prayed and said farewell to one another. And we boarded the ship and they went back home. All right, so mostly we're reading about the travels of his journey back to hurry to Jerusalem to give an offering that he had taken from the Gentile churches to bring to the Jewish primarily church in Jerusalem. He wanted to get there by Pentecost, so he was in a rush. They saved a little bit of time on certain sailing things. But there's one thing I want to highlight from that passage that maybe you glanced over. I find it a bit troubling. And it's this phrase that says, through the Holy Spirit, the believers were telling Paul not to go to Jerusalem. All right, whose idea was it for Paul to go to Jerusalem in the first place? Holy Spirit. What the heck? What, the Holy Spirit's telling him to go to Jerusalem, but he's telling other people to stop him from going to Jerusalem? That sounds messed up. That sounds like God is contradicting himself. Does God contradict himself? Never. So what's going on? There's a couple different options, but I think the most likely option is this. You see, there were believers in that church that were so close to the Lord and they were operating in the prophetic that they were receiving clear downloads that when Paul goes to Jerusalem, it's gonna be brutal. 
And it wasn't just because Paul was telling them it was going to be brutal. Like in their own prayer times, they were finding out. And when they discerned that from the Holy Spirit that it was going to be terrible, their humanity kicked in. And they wanted to stop him from pain. Hmm. It's always interesting to realize in any given church scenario, in any given ministry scenario, you have the pure Holy Spirit and you have the complicated human element, right? It's hard to tell which is which, yeah? And that kind of causes a lot of confusion, causes a lot of challenge. What happens when believers get opposite messages? You guys, I have been in senior leadership for the last 30 years. Prior to that, I did more ministry, so I've kind of been around the block. And as long as I've been in ministry, I've had a very confusing experience. I've had different Christians tell me God gave them a word and they're polar opposite. Happens all the time. I mean, everything from every new political figure that comes on, right? Oh my gosh, God told me, this is our savior. This is the guy who's anointed. This is the one that's gonna take care of the church. All of a sudden, another Christian, I heard he's the antichrist. The Lord told me he's the antichrist. Okay, you can't be God's anointed savior and the antichrist at the same time. Somebody's wrong or everybody's wrong. Does that make sense? And I hear it all the time right? I mean, I've heard this all the time. I've heard somebody come up and go, dude, I got to tell you, man, Lord showed me in a dream, that girl, she's going to be my bride. Talk to her. She's like, the Holy Spirit said, run. That dude's a psycho. (laughs) Well, which is it? We're either getting married or he's a psycho. It's obviously not the same thing, I hope, right? So what do I do with all that? Because that really messes with my head. You got people telling me God said totally different opinions. Well, so clearly God seems confused, right? Or, man, I can't trust very much of what comes out of your mouth. I put up this massive filtering system. I am so skeptical. Every time somebody has a word from the Lord for me or anyone around, I have like a little tick, right? They're like, hey, I received a word from the Lord. I'm like, I was like, what? I'm sorry, what's that? It's almost like a glitch in the matrix. Like if you look at my eyes, they go, duh, 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 and they come back, right? And, it, and I do the same thing. Anyone that ever says, dude, I want to talk about prophecy, I was like, <laughs> and I'm like, oh, it's going to get weird. Here we go, right? And because I realized that, that human beings are very odd conduits for God, that there's so much stuff that can get messed up in translation, right? Now, don't get me wrong. I believe that prophecy is legit. I believe we need more prophecy in this church, not less. I believe it is active today as it's always been. I believe the Holy Spirit is speaking all the time. I think we need to grow up in this. My problem is I don't see a lot of people taking the time and effort to purify their hearts, their mind, and their bias to give me a clean message. See everybody with an agenda, twisting the messages of God. And so do I believe we need more of it? Yes. Do I trust it? Not yet. Right? It's hard for me. It's hard for me. Once again, I take it all very seriously. Hey, most words may not be totally accurate, but I'll tell you this, I better take them all seriously because I got a soft heart. I want to know what God wants. I don't get to just go, oh, it's all bogus. Oh, I don't want to deal with that drama, blah, blah, blah. I don't get that right. I'm a Christian, which means if the Holy Spirit wants to talk to me, the Holy Spirit gets to talk to me. And I don't get to just shove it off because it's complicated. Y'all following me? Okay, so let's pick it up in verse seven. When we had finished the voyage from Tyre, we arrived at the beach port of Ptolemy. And we greeted the brothers and sisters and stayed with them for one day. All right, pause. This is a soapbox moment for me. Uh, Now, once again, not a part of the message, but I just have a need to stand on a soapbox for something. Okay, so here's here's what happened. In verse 7, did you see that it says in your Bible, uh, we greeted the brothers, and then I said they greeted the brothers and sisters, right? What is that all about? Well, let me tell you a story. So back in the day when Bridgeway first got started, we used to use the NIV 84. That was the Bible translation that we used. And, and I thought it was 
miraculous. I thought it was wonderful because it was my most familiar, right? Anything you're familiar with or you fall in love with suddenly becomes more holy than everybody else's, right? So I was like, ooh, this is a great translation. Well, then we found out they were going to stop producing it. And we had all the, church, the Bibles under people's seats and all that stuff. So they were gonna stop producing it. So we had to either buy their new one, which was called the new NIV, or we were gonna go to a different translation. Now, I remember when it came out, it got a lot of heat, right? They had a lot of things they wanted to adjust and change. And just, you just gotta know this about uh, anything that's a change in any way is automatically branded liberal. I just need you to know that. If you have a new child, the child's liberal. Okay, so it's just, it's, it's everybody's default, right? Anything new is automatically liberal. So, you know, so when the, they were like, hey, we need to make some adjustments. Oh my gosh, they're going liberal, you know? And so they made some adjustments and, and, and in analysis, looking back, you know, there's some things that were good, some things I wouldn't have agreed with, stuff like that, whatever. But one of the things that they did was uh, adjust gender language in there. And you're like, oh, it can't be, you know, uh, a, a postman. It's gotta be a post person. Oh, they're just being liberal. Okay, hold on. One of the things they were trying to adjust was what you just saw which is when you look at the language in Greek, it's more open and inclusive than what you're looking at. So when you see the word brothers, could be brothers, but it's a Delphoi, which is a plural idea that is wide open to include more than just men. So it's actually more accurate to be able to say, hold on a second, it means all the people there which were male and female. And the reason why that matters and why I'm on the soapbox about it is if you don't understand that, everything sounds like a dude fest, right? You read the Bible and you're like, well, it was guys talking to guys and only did guy stuff. And then they had sports and then it was guys, and then, right? And you don't realize there was men and women involved in the early church and you don't get the flavor of that. All right, stepping off my soapbox, let's go back to the sermon. Here we go. Verse eight. On the next day, we departed and came to Caesarea Philippi in the upper Israel Galilee region. And we entered the house of Philip the Evangelist, who was one of the original seven, and stayed with him. He had four unmarried daughters who prophesied. While we were staying for many days, a prophet named Agabus came down from Jerusalem in Judea, and coming to us, he took Paul's belt and bound his own feet in hands and said, thus says the Holy Spirit, this is how the radical group of Jews at Jerusalem will bind the man who owns this belt and deliver him into the hands of the Gentiles. Okay, let's pause. How many of you have had that experience recently? Right? So let's talk about it. Uh, the first thing that we need to know is they came and stayed at a guy's house named Philip the Evangelist. Who's this guy? Well, he's kind of a big deal. So if you remember way back at the beginning of the book of Acts, the church of Jesus Christ exploded. And when I mean exploded, I'm talking about they started with 120. The day of Pentecost, 3,000 people got saved and joined the church. You went from 120 people to 3,120 in one day. So they're reeling from this. Oh my goodness, there are so many needs and concerns. We don't have any infrastructure. And the apostles realized we're spending so much time on logistics, things are falling through the cracks and we're not doing our assignment. Our job is to pray, remain close to God, direct the church and know the word. All right, great. We can't do that. We need to put in another line of leadership. They selected seven guys. These are not just nice guys. Well, I can get your coffee. These are, I move in the miraculous hardcore guys. They grabbed seven of them. Philip was one of those. Now there was an original apostle named Philip. This is not that guy. Okay. This is a deacon. That's where we get that phrase deacon from. All right. He was known as Philip the Evangelist for a couple reasons. One, there's a famous story about him, which I'm gonna say in one second. The other thing is, after these events, church history tells us he was kind of on a missionary extraordinaire. So everybody kind of thought of him. There's the Apostle Philip and there's the Evangelist Philip. They're two different guys. Make sense? Now, the story that we know about him that's pretty famous, we actually studied in this series 
Earlier in Acts, we read about a guy named Philip who the Holy Spirit said, hey, I want you to go hang out at this crossroads. Now that's very random, didn't give him any details. Philip in obedience said, sure, Lord, goes down there. Nothing's happening there. All of a sudden, a chariot pulls up, right? Radio's loud, stuff like that. Turns down, and he starts reading a scroll, the guy sitting in the chariot. Now, the Holy Spirit says, Philip, I want you to go hang out by the chariot, which is very awkward. He's like, yes, Lord, goes over by the chariot, and there's a Philip, uh, excuse me, there's an Ethiopian eunuch who's a leader, big dog, sitting there reading the Bible. So Philip is like, I guess I'll start a conversation. Hey, what you reading? I'm reading the Bible. Do you understand it? Well, not really. Why, do you know something about it? Matter of fact, I do. Hops up in the chariot. They chat about it. The dude gets saved. They end up getting baptized. It's a super cool story. That is this guy. Now, it says he had four unmarried daughters. Why is he pointing that out? In a religious context, it's very significant. In the Jewish ancient culture, women by and large were married off around 14, 15, 16, 17 years old. So the idea that we have maritable aged ladies that are not married is significant. Why? Well, it is most likely because it was a decision not just on their behalf, but their parents' behalf that these girls were so hardcore for Jesus They said, I'm all in. I don't have time for the distraction of having a man in my life. I don't want to get married. I don't need any of that extra stuff. It's me and Jesus all the time. I'm out. And I'm making a vow that I'm not open to that. Okay, that's a big decision. It says all four of them prophesied. Now, does that mean that they, like all Christians, can hear from the Lord and speak on the Lord's behalf? Were they just so mature, they moved in the prophetic? Maybe. Or is it possible that in that family, in such a rare circumstance, the Holy Spirit gave them supernatural gifts and empowerment of prophecy to a degree that they had the office of prophet? Where we're talking about, you know, everyone that is a believer can operate in the prophetic, but if you have the office of prophet, that is your wheelhouse. That is your gifting. You do it more than everybody else. You do it more accurately than everybody else. It's your primary ministry. Is it possible the Holy Spirit lit up all four of them with that gift? That would be extraordinary. And I believe so. I believe that's what he did. Now, the reason why is because external, outside the Bible sources and church history refer to these women quite a bit. The prophetic ministry they operated in was very powerful. A lot of people knew about them, and that's why they're highlighted right here, okay? The one thing that I take from this, if I'm gonna be selfish about it, and not really selfish, just kind of introspective, what a cool dad. All four of his daughters are in the ministry. All four of his daughters, in a day and age when women were not respected, he said, not only are you called, you are gifted, and you are empowered to operate in the office of prophet, and I will be the one that champions you. Now that's a cool dad, yeah? What an amazing testimony. A couple other things that we need to learn. So while we already have too many prophets in the room, another one shows up, right? And his name is Agabus, which is a totally stupid name. Please do not name your child that, but whatever. He comes up and he starts being weird, right? I don't know if you've noticed this, but a lot of people that operate in the prophetic that are really hardcore, they're just flat out weird, okay? And you're like, I know that's me. Yeah, we all know it's you, okay? We're actually talking about you right now. Okay, now, so he comes up, and he's like, Paul, I need your belt. And he's like, well, I need it to keep up my drawers. So I don't, okay, whatever. And so he's like, here you go, hands him his belt, and he's binding his hands and feet. Now, this is a bit dramatic. I don't know how long this takes, but it's very hard to bind your own hands and your own feet with one belt. 
So I don't know if they're just waiting for this guy to get done and everybody's sitting around going, what's he doing? And he's like, I don't know, man, that guy's weird. Just let him do his thing, right? He always has to do something dramatic. Okay, cool, you done yet? You done yet? You done yet? And then he's like, I have a message. And they're like, great, bring it. The one who owns this belt. You mean Paul? You could have just said Paul, dude. You don't need to get dramatic. You don't need, the one who, okay, you just took it from him. We all saw you. Why don't you just say, Paul, all right? It will go to Jerusalem and be bound. Okay, cool, buddy. Thank you. Thank you very much. Okay, now it's funny because at, at this point, you know, through my personality, right? I'm super practical. I'm not really into flash and flair. And so I, I don't really like this, right? I don't like when, when sometimes it looks like somebody's putting on a little extra airs you know, to be a little extra holy, like every time they give you a word from the Lord, suddenly it's old English. And you're like, uh, you know, Jesus didn't speak that, right? Like, I'm not sure why you're speaking that. That's really weird. But I have something for you to consider. What if it's what the Holy Spirit asked him to do? What if the Holy Spirit said, you're going to look weird, and that's part of it? Because either you can tell them the information practically or you can show it to them. Because if you show it to them, a picture is worth a thousand words. And I'm gonna tell you this, they may forget your words, but they will never forget the image that you just showed them of what binding looks like. So I get it, dude. You may not wanna be weird. I'm telling you right now, it's how I want you to convey the message. You see, so many of us are like, oh, I don't like the supernatural ministry. It's weird. Yeah, it is. And sometimes it needs to be because you got to get your, see, I remember this one phrase and this has never left me. If you can get your arms around God, he's not God, right? There better be an element of mystery. There better be an element that's over your head. There better be an element of weird. Otherwise, you got a really tiny religion that I think that some of us need to be blown away by the fact that stuff is out of our control and not everything is sanitized and clean and perfect and easy and quiet and nice. There's gotta be mess if it's gonna be real. So I think sometimes we need to suck it up and go, you know what? It's being weird and dramatic for a reason and we just need to understand that, yeah? All right, there's one last thing that I wanna highlight before we move forward is he uses a phrase I don't care for. Agabus said, thus saith the Holy Spirit. Okay, now that is a bit of a, mm, I get really tense. Okay, let me tell you why. It's not that it's a bad phrase. It's a beautiful phrase. As a matter of fact, it's a powerful phrase. My concern with it is it's too powerful of a phrase. And I don't like Bridgeway folks to use it because I don't think we've earned it. Here's what I mean. If somebody's gonna give you a word from the Lord and they say, God told me to tell you, the minute you say God said, it shuts down all conversation. I can't argue with you. I can't filter it. I can't sift it. I can't think through it. Why? You already said God said it exactly like this, and God never makes any mistakes. So that defies what the New Testament says, that all of us have the ability to operate in the prophetic, so what we should all do is weigh one another and what's being said. I'm supposed to put it through a filter. I'm supposed to check it against the Bible. I'm supposed to see if it resonates with my spirit. But I can't do any of that if you tell me you nailed it the first time perfect and it's exactly right. Because the problem is it's a power move. You shut everybody else down. God told me that, oh, okay, well, what am I supposed to say to you? No, he didn't. I can't say that. So at Bridgeway, I don't like it until we earn it. So what I would prefer us to say is, I feel like the Lord is saying, I think that God has given me a word for you. Because those simple little adjustments bring a humility that reminds the person you're talking to, I need you to weigh this, I may have screwed it up, just me. God is totally true, God is accurate, but when it came through me, it might have picked up a little bit of weirdness, right? I think that's a healthier way, it allows accountability, it allows for us to go back and go, dude, I, don't, I think you missed it on that one. Like, uh, that didn't resonate with me, right? We should have that freedom. So when we, and as again, I'm gonna say it, I think we need to have more prophecy. Let us have some checks and balances in there that keep us healthy, amen? 
All right, let's move forward. Verse 12. When we heard this prophetic revelation that Paul was going to get hurt, we and the people there urged him not to go up to Jerusalem. This is Luke included. Then Paul answered, what are you doing? Weeping and breaking my heart. For I'm ready not only to be imprisoned, but even to die in Jerusalem for the name of the Lord Jesus. And since he would not be persuaded, we stopped talking about it. And we said, let the will of the Lord be done. Here we go again. Why would Luke jump in on this? Luke knows Paul. He knows him well. He's been traveling with him for years. Why would he even be like, dude, I don't think you should go to Jerusalem. If the Holy Spirit told him to go to Jerusalem, he needs to go to Jerusalem. You heard him say that. You know what I think it is? I think it's the same reason why Jesus' disciples tried to stop him from going to the cross. I think we're back in humanity again. If you know that someone you desperately care about is going to go through the ringer, you don't want it to happen on your watch. So you jump in and you go, I don't think you should go. But notice Paul's response. Guys, you're making it harder. I mean, I already know I have to go. And it's already going to be hard for me. You know I'm all in. But now I have to look at your little tear-stained face and I got to disappoint you. Now I have to tell you I'm not doing what you tell me to do. Now I'm like, oh, I need to go put myself in danger. I don't need the extra emotional weight that you're mad at me for doing what God asked me to do. I need you to get on my team. I mean, I get it, but you're letting your humanity drive your advice. I don't need your feelings telling me what you think I should do. I need Jesus to tell me what to do. Interesting, the word there in Greek for breaking my heart is you're crushing my spirit like a person doing laundry on rocks. Just a wild phrase. Like, man, you're just beating me up here emotionally. Don't go, don't go, don't go. I have to go, and I'm gonna double down on that. Not only am I willing to be imprisoned, I'm willing to die. If I do not come back from Jerusalem, I'm fine with that. So stop talking me out of it. They were like, okay. Now, I do want to add one other thing, and that is they also realize that Paul is human. Sometimes we think of him as a superhero. Do you guys remember that not too long ago, there was a big riot in one of the cities, and they were tearing apart his friends, and he's like, I need to go in there. Do you remember that? And all of his friends were like, no, you do not. Dude, you are not going in there. And they held him back. They were like, Paul, sometimes you don't make the best decisions. You know that, right? Like we've held you back before from making very poor choices. So I don't know when we're supposed to step in and when we're not supposed to step in. We're feeling our way through this. There might be some humanity in that too, yeah? It says, so finally, they just said, well, let the Lord's will be done. You know, there's a phrase that Jesus said in Luke 6, 46, that is a bit haunting in my mind, and I use it as a conviction piece to keep me on track. And it's this line. Why do you call me Lord, Lord, and do not do what I say? You guys know what Lord means? Anybody use the word Lord? I use it all the time. I always talk about the Lord Jesus, right? Because I feel like it's an honoring title, and it means master, which means boss which means authority. And he said, why do you keep using the phrase if you're not treating me like your authority? Either stop using the phrase or take it seriously. But you don't get to have the, oh, I sound holy, but I'm not really believing it. You don't get to do that. You keep calling me something in front of everybody else, but when it really comes down to me tapping you on the shoulder, you keep telling me no? And if I was your boss, you wouldn't tell me no. Is that correct? Yeah. Okay. Pick it up in verse 15. After these days, we got ready and traveled the final 65 miles on land to go up to Jerusalem. And some of the disciples from Caesarea went with us, bringing us to the house of Nason of Cyprus, an early disciple with whom we were going to lodge. 
When we had come to Jerusalem, the brothers received us gladly, and on the following day, Paul went in with us to see James, and all the elders were present. After greeting them, Paul related one by one the things that God had done among the Gentiles through his ministry, and when they heard it, they glorified God. Okay, this is a very important meeting. We've spent all this time Watching Paul, he seems like the big dog. He's the one setting up the churches. He's the one spitting out the theology. He's the one doing all the hardcore stuff. But all of a sudden, you remember, oh, he brought a gift to the Jerusalem church, and they went back to the mothership where everything started. Who's at the mothership? The apostles. Yeah, one of them's gone. Okay. But John, Peter, those guys, like, walked with Jesus. You don't get cooler than that, right? Well, Peter and John aren't there. They're out doing missionary work. So who's the pastor that's at home? His name is James. He's known as James the Just. That was his reputation. To show you it's not the James that's the apostle. It's a different guy. And who's this guy? Jesus' younger brother. Can we all agree Jesus doesn't have older siblings? That's a virgin birth joke. (laughs) James, during Jesus' life, did not believe that he was the Messiah. There's nothing more irritating than your older brother being the Messiah. Is that true? Is that true? So at some point he flipped. When do you think he flipped? I think when his brother got out of the grave and came back and said, duh. (laughs) And I think at that moment, he was like, I'm all in. Okay, great. Right, the whole raising from the dead thing kind of convinced me, <laughs> right? Well, he became pretty hardcore. He became known as the pillar of the church. He was really the, the senior pastor of the Jerusalem church. He was known as James the Just because he was very wise, very diplomatic, very formal. He was super Jewish. Now, what I mean by that is a lot of those guys were Jews, but he was very good at navigating Jewish culture. As a matter of fact, it allowed him to lead in Jerusalem when other people received too much persecution, He was really very much about the traditions and the festivals and everything. And so he didn't get as much heat because the Jews were like, well, I don't believe in Christianity, but at least I like that dude. I mean, that guy's still a good guy. So he was very well liked in the city. The problem with that is that he tended to lean more formal, which led a little bit more religious, which led a little bit more legalistic. How do we know that? Well, you're going to watch an interesting dialogue happen between Mr. Formal Jewish talking to Mr. Gentile Ministry Jewish, and you realize they are not on the same page, okay? It says this, and they, and James, in essence, said to Paul, verse 20, you see, brother, how many thousands there are among the Jews of those who have believed? In other words, we have a ton of Jews around here that are Christians. We have Messianic Jews. There's a lot of us. They are all zealous for the law and the traditions. That's a big deal to us. And they have been told rumors about you that you teach all the Jews who are among the Gentiles to forsake Moses. You tell them not to circumcise their children, not to walk according to our customs. So what do you think we should do about that? They will certainly hear that you have come here, and boy, they're not going to be happy about it. I'm expecting some picketing. I'm expecting some rioting. I'm expecting people are not cool that you're here. I just need you to know, brother, you've been gone a long time. People talk about you, and it ain't good, okay? So not everybody's happy that Apostle Paul showed up. They're like, man, that guy's been walking around. He's been harassing anti-Jewish stuff. He's been talking to the Gentiles and telling them that the Jewish customs don't matter anymore. And we need to handle that. So let's get out in front of this. I'm not asking you. I'm telling you. Here's what you're going to do. Look at verse 23. Do therefore what we tell you. We have these four men who are under a 30-day Nazarite vow. I want you to take these men, purify yourself along with them at the temple, and I want you to pay their expenses so they can shave their heads. And then everybody will know publicly that there's nothing about the rumors they've been told about you, but that you yourself live in observance of the law. Huh. 
That's weird. Okay, let's think about that for a moment. Is it weird that somebody's telling Paul what to do? You know what I mean? Because you're like, well, all of our theology primarily comes from him. And did Paul ever talk about the Jewish customs and how he feels about them? He did. How does Paul feel about circumcision? What was his attitude? What did he write in his letters? If you do or if you don't, it's all right. It doesn't bring you righteousness. I mean, it's either Jesus or nothing, right? So I'm not really into the whole, man, we got to circumcise our kids so they're saved. Like, that's not a thing. So you know he does not agree. But James is like, dude, we need to clear this up, right? Because you live according to all the customs, right? Hmm, interesting. He says, we got four guys, and I want it all to be public. We got four guys that are going to do. The Nazarite vow goes like this. You're dedicating time to the Lord. It's usually a 30-day period. You let your hair grow long. At the end of it, you go into the priest. They shave your head and burn your hair. And then you have to sacrifice a female lamb, a male lamb, a ram, and drink and food offerings. That's very expensive. They just said, Paul, I want you to take all four dudes do all of that, and then you have been walking around in creepy, yucky Gentile land, so I need you to clean yourself up, and then everyone can see the rumors aren't true. But what if the rumors are true? They're not totally true, but what if part of them are true? What about that? Well, they're not done. They got more. Take a look at verse 25. And as far as the Gentiles who have believed, all your Christian buddies out there that are not Jewish, we sent a letter with our judgment about them which is funny because I'm like, you sent a letter to who? I'm right here. Now, they probably sent it to Antioch. All right, what'd your letter say? Well, we told them that they should abstain from any food sacrificed to idols, from any meat that has blood in it, from any meat that's been strangled because it will have blood in it, and I want you to restrain from sexual immorality. Oh, okay. All right, what else? Nothing, that was it. Okay. Verse 26, then Paul took the men. The next day he purified himself along with them, went into the temple, gave notice about the days of purification would be fulfilled and the offering presented for each one of them. That's it. Hmm. Question for you. Did Paul compromise? Depends on how you look at it, right? Because you know he doesn't necessarily agree with all that. You know he's kind of looking at it and going, food sacrifice to idols, ah, it's not really demon meat. Okay. How did he respond? Yep, let's do it. Let's go. I'm in. Is that a compromise? Because some of us in our personalities think it is. We think that we need to argue about everything. We want to be right more than we want unity. So we're going to start it up. Hey, dude, I don't know what you think about that. You know, that ain't right, and this is the real way that you need to do that, and I don't think you even know what you're talking about. Like, I'm the theologian here, and blah, 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 blah. He didn't do any of that. What did he do? Yep, let's go. I'm in. All his buddies are like, dude, you don't agree with all that stuff. He's like, not to a degree that I would divide over it, so you need to quiet down. We're going to the temple. Let's go right now. Why? That's called Maturity. If everybody's in a room and we're talking about what's fact and we're talking about what's theology and we're in the right setting, we can argue, we can debate, we can talk about that stuff. But if you just need to put your opinion in every conversation about what you think is right, you're causing disunity unnecessarily. Sometimes we need to suck it up and say this is not the moment. We can talk about it later. But right now, God's trying to do something. Paul walked in on a powder keg of tension. James has been trying to manage it the whole time he found out Paul was coming for a visit. He's been telling his people, don't worry, he's not gonna cause any problems. It's cool, it's cool, it's cool. All of a sudden, Paul walks up, he goes, it's cool, right? I've been telling my people, you are not gonna blow stuff up, right? Paul's like, I'm not here to cause a problem. I'm here to bring you a gift. I'm here to bless you. All right, that's what I thought. Cool, let's get this stuff done. Let's get out ahead of it. Now, some people would have said, I don't really care what other people think. I don't need to lower my standards for you. 
I got freedom in my Lord. What did he do? Yep, let's go. This is where you're struggling right now. All right, I'm not a bad guy. And I'm not here to cause any problems. I'm here to love on you. So we go. Now you're going to find out this is about to start a war. But Paul's not going to be the one to throw the first rock. You guys, as we close out, I'm just going to pray that we can have this fire in our heart that we could say yes whenever God asks. I mean, I'm looking at Jesus, I'm looking at Paul, and I'm so inspired. They had these lives that mattered. Like everything that they walked into was powerful and useful. Maybe it didn't feel like that to them, but we know it was. And it was just one yes at a time, one yes at a time, one yes at a time. We can do that. And so I'm just going to pray for that fire that we actually have a desire to align our lives with the Lord and not be so interested in building our kingdom that is so resistant to God. You have to ask yourself at some point, when God says, hey, I want you to do this for me, and you say the cost is too high, who gave us the right to build a life that made that cost so high? Well, I could never possibly pray at my company that I started. Everybody would lose respect for me. Who said you could build a company where they didn't know that you were a prayer warrior? You did that? Because you just made everything harder. You could have started at the very beginning and everybody would have known. You're making things tougher than it should be. Is there going to be a cost when God asks you to do stuff out of your comfort zone? Yeah, but we don't need to make it worse, right? Our job is to say, yes, Lord, wherever we can. Amen? Let's close in prayer. Heavenly Father, we thank you and we love you. Can I have the prayer team come forward? God, would you anoint the altar today, the prayer warriors today, that God, a lot of things have been stirred up in our hearts. We're processing a lot. And some of us, Lord, need your touch. I just pray right now, Lord, that you would encourage us, that you'd strengthen us, that you'd give us a vision of what it would look like if we were all in, if we were passionate, if we were fiery, if we, not just to cause problems, but to create solutions. Lord, would you give us such a passion for your kingdom that nothing seems more important than that? Would you light us aflame to the glory of your name? In Jesus' name we pray, amen.